This is the MLW Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome to Overbooked with Mike Freeland. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Overbooked. Of course, I am your host, Mike Freeland. I do appreciate you bearing with me here. I know it's been over a month since our last episode, which was Chapter 4 of the Sabu book. As many of you know, I am a middle school teacher, and uh, sometimes life gets a little crazy with the students, creating papers, getting back with parents, and and then trying to make sure that I keep the misses, as you know, Miss Megan, uh, happy here at the household. And not incorporating too much wrestling into our home life, but uh, I do definitely want to touch base with you guys and get this going here on chapter five. Uh, It's been a good book so far. So for those of you who are just joining us right now, I definitely recommend jumping into the archives, checking out the foreword all the way up to chapter four. I think you'll really like it. It's been a good book so far. We've learned a lot about Sabu. We've learned about his relationship with his uncle, wrestling in the backyard, paying your dues, uh, doing a lot of work, uh, physical work that had nothing to do with wrestling. And Sabu appears to be somebody of old school mentality where you really had to work your way up before you ever made it into the squared circle. It's interesting because I was watching AEW Dark and um, one of the, I think it's Colton Gunn, Uh, just hit the one-year anniversary of him being in wrestling, uh, pro wrestling, and he's already on Dynamite. It's just, it's crazy nowadays how quickly people are able to go ahead and train and get on national TV, but that was not the way it was back in the day. You traveled up and down the roads. You got bookings where you could get them. You got very little pay uh, and a lot of reasons that uh, people quit the business because the money just wasn't there. But for the people who truly believed in themselves and wanted to bet on themselves, they stuck in there. They hung with it. Sabu is a perfect example of somebody who became wildly successful, not only in uh, North America, but also in Mexico and Japan as well. And he has wrestled all over the world. And uh, we're chronicling his career. So let's go ahead and let's just jump right into it. We'll uh, we'll do a little more chit-chatting. Uh, about other things afterwards. But chapter five is entitled FMW. So for those of you who may not be familiar with what FMW is, it's Frontier Martial Arts Wrestling. And it was a company that originally was all about martial arts. And then it started to work in pro wrestling. And it eventually turned into a very hardcore style of wrestling. A lot of weapons, a lot of barbed wire, a lot of fire, if you're ever interested, uh, you can YouTube it and you can find some of the craziest exploding ring barbed wire matches. I think there's a match that actually is in the middle of an Olympic sized swimming pool. The wrestlers actually have to take a boat out there. I mean, it's very theatrical. Don't get me wrong. However, um, it was very, very dangerous. A lot of wrestlers got hurt. Um, 
it's just a different style. It was like ECW, but it took it to the next level. So if you're ever curious, definitely go ahead and check that out. We may even have an episode where we cover strictly just FMW and let you know what it all was about, how it started, how Nita was involved in it, and uh, how it eventually ended, and now how we have FMWE, which is the reincarnation of the original FMW. All right, let's get into it. Onita wanted everything to look as real as possible. Imitating something was hot in the fighting arts market. Now, right about this time in 1991, the Ultimate Fighting Championship, now known as UFC, was just taking off. Now, back then, it wasn't really mixed martial arts yet. What they did was they would pit one karate guy against a boxer or a judo fighter or another kickboxer. The mixing idea was more about pitting one discipline of combat against another. Now, Anita really liked this idea a lot and decided to bring it to his own version into Japan. So what Onita decided to do was to book professional wrestlers in matches against real shoot fighters. Then he booked not to tell them that it was a work. On the 15th hour of our flight over to Japan, the Sheik told me he wanted me to wrestle differently in Japan. To enhance the Sabu character, he said, he didn't want me to look generic or to at some point be forgotten about. After six years of growing my hair long, to get that tougher wrestler look going, I knew I had a decent look, but he thought that changing my wrestling style along with my look would really serve me well in the future. So, who do you want me to wrestle like? Sabu. Sabu? I want you to wrestle like how you would wrestle in the backyard when you thought I wasn't watching, he said. Oh, my heart dropped. You mean you saw all that stuff? I asked him. I was embarrassed. I was in front of my uncle and I was blown away. I pitched the sheik maybe a couple of ideas of what I wanted to do, but he was strictly old school. He didn't want that. But I did find out he was looking through the kitchen window when he would go inside. He was hiding behind the curtain. Sometimes he was just shaking his head. Well, just as I did my first triple moonsault landing on my good friend RVD's head, he said nothing, but he just grinned a little at me. The shit with Rob and all. You saw us practicing, and you never said anything? He nodded. You knew all this time? Yes, said the sheik. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was a little uneasy at the thought of what he must have been thinking about what we were doing in the backyard at the time. But also, in a way, I was kind of relieved. I was finally being liberated. Oh. I was finally able to do what I wanted to do. Well, are you sure? I asked him. I'm sure, he said. He hunched over me more. Don't worry about making the fans confused or happy or sad. Just do those damn crazy moves I saw you doing. And I think everything will turn out just fine. Now, I had no idea what exactly he had seen or how much of it he had seen. I mean, keep in mind, we did some pretty fucked up shit whenever he wasn't around. Now, having absolutely no idea which moves he was talking about, because we had done so much, I decided I might need to clarify something with him. Um, which ones are you talking about, I said. All of them. Any of them. Do any of them you want, he said. In fact, do them all. Okay. 
our arrival to Japan. Now, I was never able to do whatever I wanted in the ring in America. Working the Memphis style was the exact opposite of what started me jumping around and all these ideas in my head. But on the flight to Japan, I started to think about things. So when I was told that I could do all that crazy stuff that I did in the backyard, and I knew the Sheik was now watching me, I felt like a huge weight had been lifted off my shoulders. Sabu is about to be born. I remember thinking in Japan, this would be a real opportunity for me. In Japan, the standards were totally different. Popular, popular wrestlers like Hulk Hogan were held in low regard by the fans because they didn't have a whole lot of wrestling skills. The entertainment factor was smaller, and the Japanese wrestling fans were all about the action in the ring. Now, in Japan, famous cruiserweights like Jushin Liger and the Great Muda were all legends because of the way they wrestled. When we first got off the plane in Japan, we headed to the street to find something to eat. Though I had never been over to Japan before, for almost 30 years, I have now really enjoyed it. My initial impressions of Japan were kind of shocking at first, I will admit. I went over to a stand on the side of the street. There, I watched someone who looked like a Japanese Charlie Chaplin put a big pink scoop into a cone and hand it to a little old woman. Hmm, ice cream. I could go for that right now. However, when I got a closer look, that pink scoop was not strawberry. I was actually not ice cream at all. I watched in horror to see what that little lady was eating. It was a healthy serving of raw hamburger served in a waffle-like cone, which just happened to look like ice cream. Then, just as I thought I had seen it all, her friend reached over the counter and held a ball of raw ground meat in her hand. She poked her thumb deep into it, then cracked an egg in the hole. The yellow goo filled the opening. She smiled. She packed the meat all around the goo to make a nice little ball. It kind of looked like an apple. And then, yep, she ate it. I pointed out that the raw hamburger ball with the creamy egg filling to the sheik. He looked, no sold it, then continued walking like nothing was out of the ordinary. All the while, I turned back for one last dose and saw that yolk dripping from her chin. Finally, we met up with Onita. We headed to the Hocho of FMW, and the second in command was Gato. Onita signed, assigned my uncle, a young boy, Abdullah the Butcher, in all Japan used to carry the Sheik's bags. They went back a ways. For the first tour, we were waiting for the bus with a bunch of other guys, but nobody knew who we were because Onita was bringing in different disciplines of fighting. Now, there were a lot of shoot guys there who knew nothing about pro wrestling and none of them were even trained. My Uncle Ed went to use the public Japanese restroom. For those who don't know, a lot of Japanese toilets are not raised bowls that you can sit on, and they're not flushed. Everything goes into the ground. Yeah, that was the way it worked. The Sheik went right in like an old pro. He squatted over those holes in the ground and took a nice, flight, fat dump. When he came back out of the restroom, he leaned up against the wall on the street and he looked down. Shit, I think I got some shit on my boots, he said in front of the boys. Everyone looked down. Is that shit on my boot, he asked me. Uh, yeah, I, I do think that shit, I said. Well, he said, wipe it off. I went back into the bathroom and I got a paper towel. 
When I came back, I picked the turd off of his boot and cleaned the silky splatter off to my best ability. All the boys popped. They thought that was the funniest thing they'd ever seen. They thought I was like an American young boy who would do whatever his mentor said. Let's talk about what young boys are. Young boys are wrestling trainees and ring crew. As part of paying their dues, they do pretty much anything and everything they're told. Even shitty jobs. Anything you can imagine. They clean the ring mat. They tape the main ropes. They clean the established wrestler's gear. And they basically do whatever the stars tell them to do. They would often have to do some horrible, silly things for their mentors. In a sense, they were doing the traditional weeding out process. They wanted to find out who could hang and who wouldn't. The Dynamite Kid used to tell a pretty nasty story of a young boy having to you to untie his mentor's boots. When the young boy didn't do it fast enough, he took a stiff knee to the face, breaking his nose. Then his mentor shoved his face into the floor and walked away. Onita was a big advocate of having young boys cater to, to the star's every whim. While he didn't necessarily physically abuse people, it was an unusual sight to see a whole group pampering him before a show. If you didn't know any better, you would think he was a prince. He would sit down like royalty in a chair, and his boys would just flock to him. One would massage his right foot, while another massaged his left foot. Another would rub his shoulders, while yet another trimmed his nails. Then another young boy would hold an ashtray under his cigarette, and even tap the ash off the cigarette for him. You know, the funniest thing about everything, when I think about it now, was I was just yet another young boy. I would just come to learn what the Japanese customs were. When I finally debuted as a unhinged Sabu, with all my crazy moves that my uncle gave me permission to do, nobody was laughing. I was flipping all around, doing all kinds of things that nobody had really seen before. They couldn't believe it. My first FMW match was on November 20th of 91 at the Osaka Perfectional Gym. It was me and the Sheik versus Horace Hogan and Mark Starr. The Sheik hadn't wrestled in Japan since 1981, but he was still over. Everyone still knew who he was. Japanese fans at night clearly knew of his rule-breaking antics, like the pencil he would throw in the fire in his matches. Still coming off of his surgery, my uncle didn't move around all that well, so I had to save the day, because it was a tag match. That is where I came in. It was my responsibility to try and hide his weaknesses. It worked. I did all the heavy lifting, and we won with the sheet getting the pinfall, pinfall for Mark Starr in only 72 seconds. Even more importantly, I was able to show a completely different side of hardcore wrestling. FMW fans were accustomed to seeing from Onita, the guy who ushered that style into the country in the first place. Using a bunch of wild acrobatic moves that Rob and I had come up with, nobody had ever really seen any kind of offense from a professional wrestler before in a ring. Oh my gosh, did you see that? Mike Awesome said to another guy. That poop kid, he's incredible. Shortly, news in the locker room traveled quickly. They all learned that I was a bit of a daredevil at heart, and they couldn't believe what they were seeing. Just like Onita did, I was throwing in all kinds of high-flying, high-risk maneuvers to make sure that fans, 
they got their money's worth if they came to see me. But I was doing it in a much more different way than anybody else had seen before. FMW started this particular tour in October of 91. A guy by the name of Honda was being pushed into the main event matches under his new nickname, Mr. Gansuki, based off of a name Tarzan Goto came up with. Mr. Kansuki ended up suffering an injury just as I showed up, and he was going to miss the rest of 1991. You know, as they say, one man's garbage can be another man's treasure. Well, his injury left a few holes in the cards, and Goto finally had an idea how to fill it. He was going to fill it with some of the spots with this new mysterious talent that no one had really seen. It was actually great for me because it allowed me to step away from tag matches that I'd been booked in, and I could accept fill-in opportunities that really allowed me to feature my singles abilities. When I came back into the locker room, I was greeted with many waves of a vast sea of compliments. So, that was the start of my first five-week tour for Onita. I immediately felt confident right away, and I was going to fit in very well in the Japanese scene with all my crazy cruiserweight skills. Also, the first night at the Osaka gym, a guy named Zeke come over to me and my uncle several times in the locker room to offer whatever services he could use. My uncle politely refused because you could easily see he was somewhat starstruck by him. He teamed up with him later that night and they lost to the Korean martial arts team of Chong Sumu and Kim Shunki. Just like my uncle and I, we were participating in the world's strongest tag team tournament where I made my debut. Come to find out, Tarzan had been grooming both Iziki and the guy I was soon to replace, Honda, which was then known as Mr. Ganasuke, for bigger and better things. At FMW, that was just the way it was being a young guy. Only a few months after my first match in Japan at the Kawasaki Stadium, Iziki and Honda had just the biggest match of their careers against each other. Before that match, Honda was complaining about stomach problems. Azike said he thought it was just jitters, but it turned out it was much more than that. Honda learned that his appendix was a mess, and he needed to have it removed right away. Honda knew he was going to be out of commission for a while, but he didn't want to mess anything up that night for his friend Azike, too. Instead, he chose to do the match. Whatever he could do in that match, he was still happy to do it. A guy broke into the business with Honda, and they knew what kind of person he was. Honda piled up into the max. He took as many drugs as he could to kill the pain from his appendix and went through the curtain and went through the match. A few nights after my debut in the tour, it continued. Yep, it continued with Azike Zange probably would have faced me and Honda. The card was subject to change, and as you know, it probably did. Ezekiel had his first singles match with me, and what was booked as being an easy victory for young Ezekiel. In over three minutes, he came up to me after the match and thanked me over and over, like I was some kind of legend. Ezekiel was a very grateful guy. I guess at the time, he was barely still a young boy himself, and he not only did he idolize the Sheik, but his worship started to rub off on me. He ran to the open doors behind us and insisted on carrying our bags. He was a super nice guy. While he loved us, it also seemed that he 
feared us at the same time. Ezekiel was, well, as you can say, it is what it is. That's why I put him in my book. But he wasn't really even one of my uncle's guys. He wasn't even on his radar. Eventually, however, he went out of his way to help the sheik in any way that he could. He was just that way. He was always right there. He was always ready to help. Because of this, he would earn the respect of my uncle eventually, and he would be considered the sheik's favorite young boy. Ezekiel even eventually allowed him to call him Papa Sheik. Ezekiel went on to become someone known as Hayabusa. Right at the start of my first trip in Japan, I found out quickly that good food was near the bigger cities. Now, one night, my uncle pointed out one of his regular sponsors was waiting for us in the locker room. You see that guy over there? He said. Yeah, I said, looking over. There was a little stout guy wearing a staying alive suit, complete with a gold chain over his collar. There were two skinny thugs with him wearing short sleeves, sporting some ridiculous tattoos on them. Do you know what he is? Do you know who he is? My uncle asked. Uh, Japanese mafia? Well, let's just call him a sponsor, he replied to me. And then he looked at me and said, no, no mafia. Well, turns out he was a boss. After a number of nights in the boonies without a lot of dinner options, this guy was taking us out for some really good food and about to treat us like royalty. You see, sponsors over in Japan actually were big wrestling fans that just had really deep pockets. And this particular one was a huge fan of the Sheik. Now, he had taken a mountain dinner before many times, and he was excited to finally meet up with me and my uncle again. Not only did he take us out for the best Kobe beef that money could buy in some really badass Korean barbecue, but he even gave us gifts. After we ate over $1,000 worth of food, the sponsor took out a cloth bag from inside his pocket at his ghetto jacket. Couldn't believe it. It was unbelievable. He opened it up and he spilled out onto the table and put some in my hand. He presented my uncle with a big, chunky, golden ring. That would make even Liberace drool. But that's not all, he said. Then the sponsor pulled out a second bag and poured it, just like the first one, in his palm. It was a massive gold necklace, not unlike the pimpin' styles that people see nowadays. It was even bigger than that. The only difference was it was more glamorous than anything I'd ever seen. Knowing the sponsors were doing these things, I kind of had my reservations. I mean, this seemed to be like a gifting ceremony after the meal. I watched, and I did as my uncle told me. I let him take the lead. My uncle nodded. Domo arigato. Then he sized up the ring and tried it on a few of his fingers until he found the one it fit on. It was his pinky. He then smiled at it and looked at it for some time. I'll tell you, it was the greatest thing in the world. This guy was pretty smart. He was working with all the people who had money. I knew he didn't want to take it, but his response was very deliberate. So to ensure future dinners and gifts, he accepted it. Then when it was my turn, I just said thank you. I nodded to the sponsor and his other friends who sat around the table wanted me to accept the gift just as my uncle had done. I stared at it for a long time before I pulled the gold over my head, the big chain. It was thick, and it looked like something the rap group 
Run DMC would wear. Once I had it on, I nodded. I knew I'd probably look a little ridiculous, and I couldn't help it what I did next. I folded my arms in a very hip-hop fashion and did the best Jam Master J pose that I could. The sponsor treated me like a king that night, but it was all downhill from there. I never saw him again, but my uncle saw him many times after that. That tour was tough on FMW, especially the bus rides. We would drive 10 to 12 hours in a single day. We were running many small farm towns over in Japan. We did really well for ourselves over there, even though we were in East Budfuck. All these podunk towns, because the big wrestling companies, they never went there, so it was easy money for us. Since they were often doing nothing in those small towns, we would often sell out every single show. Now this was despite the fact that most of the guys in the card couldn't work. These tiny towns really sucked for us, though. There was never much of anything to eat there. These small towns had no restaurants, and with the massive travel time, there was also no time for a hotel. Most often, we would have to leave the show, let's say, by midnight. Then we'd have to drive another 8 to 10 hours to the next town. It didn't always make sense to us. Sometimes we'd get there like at 5 or 6 in the morning after a brutal, and I mean brutal, bumpy dirt road ride. Then we'd get out. We'd look for a place to sleep on the floor in the arena. One night, there was some Korean fighters who were certainly not ready for their first match. They didn't speak any English, so there was no way in smartening them up. But during the match, when they tried to do something, my uncle and I would just hop the ropes and nail them as hard as we could from behind. We could easily take them down. As for the rest of them, it wasn't really a work shoot, but... They knew something was up. Onita wouldn't say anything to them while they were in the ring, but he would say, don't kill each other, and then go out and win. Sheik was one of the most attacked wrestlers everywhere in the world, but he could hold his own, especially in Japan. It was odd because fans didn't really attack him, but they would swarm from everywhere around just to reach and touch him. I remember one night we saw what seemed like hundreds of people who were clearly afraid of the Sheik, but they were running all over to him to get close. The curious thing was, what happened was, one person was trying to sneak up behind him as he was making his entrance, and, and all of a sudden, they would try to tag him and run away. What the hell is this, I said. When I found out later on, the Japanese culture can be very superstitious. One belief is that if you touch something or someone who you are very afraid of, you will get good luck. So because the Sheik was so feared in Japan, everyone was trying to do this. While this was a great sign that the fans were super fearful of him, it was also a pain in the ass trying to get their way to the ring without being mauled. He had to dodge countless fans on his way in his ring entrance, trying to get a little bit of good luck from him. It almost looked like a herd of lepers trying to touch Jesus to get healed. Because of the tortures, there was always doubling his entrance for part-time tours. I remember Anita deciding to have Kevin Sullivan and myself come out with the Sheik one time to be his entourage. This had nothing to do with any kind of storyline or anything. We were just there to deflect the touchers so the Sheik could make himself to the ring. You know, the crazy thing 
of anything ghost style in wrestling that FMW was known for was I wanted to do anything and everything in the ring. They had a lot of number of weird mixed fighters like judo fighters versus boxers, but they also did ridiculous gimmick matches. After I came along, it wasn't unheard of eventually to see an electrified barbed wire barricade double hell explosion match on the card. This was the mentality they had before it was being different. It's the mentality that allowed me to show off my creativity and my abilities in the ring. I kind of used it as my open playground, and I got to be myself. It was the first place I worked where it was okay to hurt your opponent. Now, I don't mean you should hurt your opponent, but if you did, you really wouldn't get in trouble for it. Other promotions, they would dock your pay or even fire you. At FMW, they would more or less just pat you on the back. I had seen wrestlers go through tables before. It was always a great response from the crowd. In the past, however, you would only see a wrestler doing a pile driver or throwing their opponent through it. But the very first time I did a table spot in Japan, I needed to do it differently. I wanted to incorporate tables into my matches because, well, I wanted it to be my signature. So the first time I used a table, I did a moonsault onto a person that was lying on the table. As far as the other guy going through the table, well, that was going to be part of my character. Most people credit me as being the first person to do that. You know, back then, you couldn't just reach under the ring and pull out a table. They weren't just there. No, that didn't exist. It sounds kind of weird, but that's just the way it was. I would pull a table out from under the ring or from anywhere else I could find one. Today, ringside tables are just about a commonplace. Extra chairs are under the ring, but that seems kind of obvious to me. This idea is not really natural. Now, as it started out, things were a little bit more different in Japan, as I found out, as opposed to working in the States. When I first started for working for FMW, the tables in all of my matches, I was able to break. But the first time, I only broke the table because it happened to be at ringside where they had a ring announcer and a timekeeper. I used it because it was right there and it made itself available. I didn't want to look like I had predetermined a spot that I wanted to break the table and then go looking for someone to put him through. I didn't want it to look like I had stored it under the ring either. I mean, why would there even be a stack of tables under a ring to begin with? That makes sense. Why would a ladder end up under a ring either? It's just impossible. Plus, it's stupid. You try to make sense of what would be done. Now, I mean, I do it today in my matches because that's what promoters want me to do. Anyhow, at FMW, what I had to use was the bell keeper's table. At first, I chose to flip onto my opponent outside of the ring and then use the impact of my own body as a weapon. That made the most sense. and It seemed the most real to me. That was the thing, keeping it looking real. Now, the Japanese tables were a little different than American tables. Boy, were these things massive. They weren't like particle board folding tables. They were like monstrous, thick beams, almost like wood doors with legs on them. I remember the first table I went through. It broke right on impact, and it got a great response. After that night, I'll admit, I landed a few times on wrestlers on those tables, and those things didn't break. When they wouldn't break, we would both just bounce off it and fall off. 
And that hurt a lot. Then I just run back into the ring, get right back on top, and do it again. If the bouncing thing happened the very first time, I attempted a moonsault through the table again. And now I would try it again. Every time I kept trying to pursue that to try to make sure it would break. I don't know. Who knows? Let's talk about chairs. With success at the table, I also decided to start to use chairs as well, using the same psychology. For years, people got hit with chairs, but nobody really used the impact of their own body to propel chairs as a weapon. That is how the Arabian Face Buster came about, where I put my own spin on it. I would put it under my one leg and then come off the ropes and do a leg drop. Then eventually the promoters wanted me to bring it to the ring with me so I could use it all the time. FMW would use foreign fighters for the first ever WWA Brass Knuckles Tag Team Championship Tournament. It also included heavyweight boxing champion Leon Spinks and a guy by the name of Luis Spicoli. In the end, the bosses Onita and Tarzan Gato won the tag team tournament on December 9th of 91, defeating Greg Radichki and Koba Girashi in the finals. On my second FMW tour, Louis Spicoli was back. Louis was a good guy, but the boy could drink, and with drinking came pissing. That son of a bitch could piss like a racehorse. Apparently, the other boys on the tour didn't like the fact that, well, the bus ride's already long. He kept making the driver stop so he could take a trip to the boys' room. Uh, excuse me, Louis would say. Uh, can you stop ahead at the next station? Uh, all the boys would groan every time Louis had to pee. Brother, why don't you just piss in a bottle instead, I would say. That would stop us from stopping all the time. Plus, you'd stop getting heat from the boys. Uh, that's a good idea, Louis said. It was a quite sight to see a big, chubby, blonde-haired boy straddling a pole with his you-know-what in a bottle, trying to fill his stinky urine up in the back of a bus. Not gonna lie, it was the funniest shit I've ever seen. Later that night, after my match, the referee said something about Spicoli having a weak bladder. You don't have to worry about that now, I said. He pissed while we were riding on the bus, so we didn't have to pull over. The referee wrinkled up his nose and said, The Japanese equivalent of that is fucking disgusting. Well, later on that night, when we pulled over at the rest stop, Spicoli just poured the bottle of piss out the window. When the referee and the other guy came back to the bus, they saw a big giant puddle of urine on the pavement. You pee out the window? The referee said to Spicoli. No, I went first in a bottle, so we didn't have to pull over and stop the bus. No, no more bottle, he shouted. The next night, we were driving to the next show. We pulled over to the rest stop. The referee came back on the bus again when Spicoli was away doing his business. Look, I held up a bottle of iced tea. No. Yes, I said. I'm working with him. This is not iced tea. That is golden-colored liquid. He's pissing on the bus again. That is the last time. It's iced tea, I'm telling you. The referee didn't believe us. The next day, Spigoli was gone from the tour. They fired him. God, I felt terrible. I had no idea that they were going to can him over pissing. It was a joke. I felt bad. I actually liked Spigoli. 
So after that, I tried my best to make it up to him. Down the road, I pulled some strings and got him booked in ECW. One night on a show, the promoter, Paul Heyman, claimed that he didn't have enough to pay Spicoli very well. So they're going to give him a cut from the show. Listen, I owe him one, Paul, I said. I'll pay him out of my cut. What? You'll pay him? Paul was the cheapest bastard from any place. Yeah? Yeah, I'll pay him. It's a done deal. It's the least I could do. Louis Spicoli is a guy who unfortunately had passed away as well. He is remembered fondly by many, many people in the wrestling world. And a really interesting story here from Sabu. It wasn't until my second FMW tour that I started doing barbed wire matches, what I eventually became famous for, even here in the States. This is also where I got my famous scars from. The first barbed wire match was February 4th of 92. The match was Onita, Goto, Sambo, Asuko, and Big Titan, a.k.a. the fake Razor Ramon, Horace Boulder, and me. The match had just a few stipulations. It was no ropes, barbed wire cage, street death fight match. Yeah, just another day at the office, right? Anyhow, I took all the bumps because, well, I wanted to. Still trying to establish my name and trying to get looked at as something special in Japan. I insisted on taking all the crazy stuff myself. At first, one might think that all that crazy stuff turned out badly for me. But actually, it turned out to be pretty positive. It showed everyone and the promotion that I was different. When the match was finally done, they pulled me out because I was bleeding badly. Onita pinned Boulder instead of me. When I got back to the dressing room, everybody congratulated me. But Onita cut the celebration short and told me to get out of there. I was a bloody mess. You go to the hospital, Onita said. I shook my head. We pay. You see, it wasn't just about the money. The office would have paid if I had to get stitches, but I just didn't want to go. After getting all barbed up for 10 minutes straight and then taking all that heat, I was just too tired. I didn't feel like waiting for an ambulance. Getting sutures all over my body, then figure out how to get back to the hotel, and by that time it would have been the middle of the night. No, Nita, it's not a big deal, I said. No big deal? No. I like it. I obviously lied. About two nights or so before on that same tour, I had a cut on my arm. Someone there had gotten lazy. Yep, they were lazy. The injury wasn't good. But somebody had something. What is this? It was crazy glue. I picked it up, put a glob over my cut, and it quickly stopped bleeding. Where did you learn how to do that? The sheik said. Um, I, I saw it on television. I, I don't remember what show. I think it was a documentary, I think. Something about World War II soldiers using it in the field to stop their bleeding instead of having to be sewn up. I saw that too on TV, the Sheik said. I think it was MacGyver. After that first barbed wire match, I figured I'd just use super glue and go with it. It worked well for the first time, so what the hell? Whoever got back in my hotel room would get the towels and a big white rug, and it looked like a butcher shop. I mean, there was blood everywhere, but 
that's what happens when you're in these kinds of matches. You just sop it up. I rinsed off and I stood in front of the mirror. Gosh, I had so many cuts that were an inch or two long all over my shoulders and my arms. Those were easy. The tough ones, now known as the famous ones, were eight inches long and they were on my chest and under my rib cage. I had to use a lot of glue on those and they still didn't stop. I went over to my gear bag and took out a roll of athletic tape. I put a healthy portion of glue on both sides of the wound, then taped that shit together. I felt like fucking Rambo. After I was done with everything, I could finally reach up. I went back into the hall with my torso all wrapped up like a mummy, and I was ready to go. Hey, bro, I said to someone that we formerly became friends with. His name was Chris Candido, who was rooming with us. Chris was wrestling that same tour in Japan under the name The Blonde Bomber. I think uh, this was his first and only stint with FMW. He was just there filling in for Kevin Sullivan, which I'll explain later more in depth when I talk about Chris and the ECW return. So, it was the first match there. I received so many of my scars on my arms and torsos. Some are from hardcore matches, including over two dozen no-rope barbed wire death matches I did. But the biggest one in the center of my body was from the very first one. I still didn't have any regrets. I didn't really mind doing barbed wire matches, especially for Onita, if he asked. It was a great way to get noticed. Now the problem was, I guess I didn't do it too well. I had no problem with working them once in a while, but eventually I felt like someone was taking advantage of my easygoing demeanor. Eventually it seemed like I was only getting booked to do barbed wire matches. I tried hard in my matches. I didn't care if I got hurt as long as everything looked good in the end. I think that's why Onida and Tarzan just assumed I was going to wrestle more of these matches. If you look back at FMW's results today, you will see that a number, the numbers, remember, they never lie. My first tour, I had one barbed wire match. The second tour, I had two barbed wire matches. By the third and fourth tour, every match I had was barbed wire I mean, like, out of 16 matches, I was in 15 barbed wire matches. At that point, I had to speak up. Onita, why do I always wrestle in barbed wire matches, he asked. Uh, but you like barbed wire. No, I said laughing. I don't like it. I don't like it. No? No. I just do it to help out, but I, I don't want to do this every single night. Onita started laughing. But he was cool in the end. He took care of me. After that, he let me do other kinds of matches. He eased up on the barbed wire bookings. It was a good thing, too, because I was running out of super glue. By May of 91, before FMW's debut later that same year, Horace Hogan, Hulk Hogan's nephew, officially joined FMW. That summer before my first tour, he formed a very dominant tag team with fellow wrestler The Gladiator who would go on to be known as Mike Awesome. The two of them engaged in a long-running feud with Onita and Sambo. They continued on until my first appearance in April of 92. Mike Awesome was headed back home while I was returning there for my second tour with some experience already, and I already had made some good moves already. I began tagging with Horace. 
And on May 7th of 92, in Tokyo, we defeated Onita and Gato for the WWA World Martial Arts Tag Team Championships. They weren't glued around our waists, however. We held those titles for only about a month before we dropped them in Tokyo to Gato and Verzik. Now, speaking of the glue, super glue became my backstage gimmick with the boys. Guys would sometimes bring me over as a joke, and then they would give me a tube before my matches. Quite often, I actually took those tubes and used them. Eventually, I started working my first match with a guy by the name of Terry Funk. I loved working with Terry. He had a history with the Sheik, so it was cool to continue that legacy with me. Having worked with my uncle a great deal back in the day, the Funker was always open to whatever I wanted to do. Speaking of open, our work was so intense that we both busted wide open and we broke our hands for our very first FMW program. I was a trooper. I knew I'd just started to get the ball rolling for me, and I wasn't about to cancel some of the matches because of some injury. I just kept re-gluing everything at the end of every match. So much that things got infected. The next night, I glued the hell out of it. The glue was gold because it held the blood and the pus in. However, I have to admit, that glue didn't hold out the pain. I had my teeth knocked out, bones chipped, broken fingers, and a hand injury that never went away. It was an everlasting evil bitch of a hornet sting that just continued to hurt. Terry, I said in the locker room. Yeah, kid. Look, I just need to stay away from my right hand. Can you stay away from my right hand tonight? It's a mess. During our match, he worked around it. Terry was a class act. He made it a point to keep my hand out of harm's way. Everything went well until the very end when I moonsaulted Terry through a table. When I would flip my arm to go for the pin, I couldn't. My right hand was somehow stuck. I looked down and saw that the long wooden sharp edge of the table stabbed me through the hand like a knife. That was the same hand that was already infected. It came right down on a sharp spike of wood, breaking my knuckles and the lower tendon in my middle finger. I only had one more night left on the tour, and I didn't want to take the night off. So, that final night, I didn't want to take chances. I took a saucer-sized Tupperware plate and taped it to my open palm. It looked like a ping-pong paddle attached to my hand. People came up to me all night after that and said, Is that your new gimmick? No, I replied. It was so painful I could barely even use it. Come my second year with FMW, things really started to take off. Japan had really taken off on the map, and things were going good for me. The magazines there were featuring me on all their covers, and I was getting tons of bookings everywhere. When I returned, more members had caught wind of me, and this time they were planning to offer me a sponsorship. Me, just like my uncle. In Japan, Yakazua means a mob or the mafia, with some members being somewhat violent in nature. They were often big fans of fighting sports. Therefore, they often wanted to take the boys out just eat, just to hang out with them, as they did originally when the Sheik and I got our first pieces of jewelry. 
Even in our neck of the woods, you can see a relationship beginning. Organized crime and wrestling. Now back in the day, the world had it that even Bruno San Martino had been encouraged to pay for protection by a couple of Italians that he honestly didn't want around. Another case was when Dino Bravo smuggled cigarettes across the Canadian border, and that got him 17 bullets in the back of his head. In Japan, the mob had been historically responsible for all kinds of crime, from prostitution to drug dealing to forced selling of stolen goods to illegal gambling. It goes on and on. They even forced landowners to sell their land so cheap so they could flip it for property, for profit. The mob were pretty extreme with their own gang members. Yut Abasum is a pretty sick form in the mob. You have to show loyalty. You have to do things like cutting people's fingers off as a sign of apology if you go against them. It was a typical self-inflicted, and it was done when someone had either made a mistake or acted up in a way that was upsetting the head of the mob. The first time they piss off the boss, the officers cut the tips of the left hand of the fingers, and then they give it to the boss as a peace offering. This shows power, just as you might expect. The mob starts with the tip of the left pinky, and then down to the knuckle, then down on the other hand. The cutting order moves for the ring finger and then so on and so forth, working backwards all the way to your thumb. Now, if you were a bad boy, in theory, you would have nothing left but a palm and a wrist. This intensity traces back actually a long time in Japan with the mob. Since the 17th century, the rituals and origins was born from the risk of not being able to grasp a Chinese sword to protect themselves. You see, starting with the little finger and moving up to the hand, the loss of fingers progressively weakened the grip on the sword. A weak sword grip would force a member of the mob to pledge more trust and reliance to the rest of the group because that person needed protection. The mob members wished to appear tough to intimidate non-members and thus impose their will on people. Some of the more important members, they were called the Irizami. They had tattoos. They were worse than any tribal ink you'd ever see on people like the Rock or the Samoans. These were painful, hand-poked, full-bodied tattoos created by inserting ink beneath the skin using handmade tools with needles of sharpened bamboo or even, in some cases, steel. And yes, these were full-bodied tattoos, full-body including ink, all the way to your ball sack. On the flip side of things, sometimes the mob and their shenanigans led to all sorts of weird things for success of some wrestling promotions. Sometimes they had an interest in a show and forced people to buy tickets. Sometimes an area had bad police who would actually force people to buy tickets to a wrestling show that the mob had some kind of investment stake in, rather than pay for a speeding ticket. You must buy tickets to the wrestling show. I remember getting a really good payday one night and Onita telling me it was because the show was sold out. Sold out, I said. Well, where are all the people then? They sold the tickets, he said. That means the people would have to buy them from them, but sometimes the ticket holders were too afraid to actually come to the show after they bought the tickets. Well, things were a little scary, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes you would hear good things about the mob. 
but other times you would hear more bad. While they might throw their money around certain wrestlers, there were also cases where they would stick around and try to rob other athletes after they got their pay. Nothing, nothing was off limits. One night during my second FMW tour, a number of them were waiting for me on the far side of the lot after my match. I was trying to make my exit before all the fans had left. As I rushed out of my way, they called for me. Sabu, one said. Sabu, another one said. I kept my head down and I pretended not to hear them until I absolutely couldn't do it any longer. As I looked up, I was completely surrounded. I dropped my bags and I put up my fists. They started laughing. No, 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 one of them said in broken English. No fight. We go to eat. Eat, I asked. Yes. We the sponsors. Well, besides the experience I had with my uncle, who was considered a bona fide legend to most of the mob, I had heard other tales of past people on shows that they weren't so generous with their money, and some of the newer guys were a little naive. Now, Mike Awesome said that they brought him out to eat Kobe beef one night, and, well, they treated him like he was a king. The restaurant was like a castle. He said if he did the math correctly, it was about $400 for a steak. He said it was the best meat he'd ever eaten, so I was intrigued by the offer. It had been a long time, not to mention a really long night. I was hungry. Uh, yes, I said, eat, yes. They all nodded. I was skeptical as they collected my belongings, ushered me into a long white Cadillac, as if it was all a work. Oh, I knew I was screwed, but as usual, I decided to risk it. With the Japanese, it was always about eating, but eating fresh. They often bragged about how much fish they were eating, and how much were caught that morning, nor how much chicken they had eaten, or how they had just cut off the heads of the chickens the night before. This meal, however, took freshness to a new level. As soon as we got to the restaurant, I sat down next to one of them and the restaurant owner. I was still a little jet-lagged, but I was hoping for the best situation. About six members surrounded me at the table. They were all laughing, and they were taking pictures with me. They were nice enough, but I honestly couldn't wait just to eat just to get the hell out of there. The soup came out first. I nodded at their hospitality, and I ate it quickly. I had already learned that slurping loudly was actually a compliment, so I made it a point to do so. Then finally, the main entree came. Everybody in the restaurant cheered as the excitement of the attractive little mama-san brought out a tray of something that I had didn't really recognize. When she finally sat the tray on a stand next to me and put a large bowl into the middle of the table, this doesn't look like Kobe beef to me, and it wasn't. What it was was a giant bowl of little squids. And you want to talk about freshness? Those motherfuckers were still alive and squirming. I watched as one member, who was missing two full fingers, mind you, fished one of the little monsters out of the bowl. The little pink thing was squirming around right and left, trying to escape the evil clutches of the chopsticks, but to no avail. Then he dipped it into some kind of sauce that immediately killed it on impact. The tentacles went limp just before he put it in his mouth. He slurped it like it was spaghetti. The rest of the table followed suit. As I pushed my seat slowly forward from the table, I just smiled. You, 
one said, slapping me on the shoulder. <laughs> I laughed. Uh, no, you. Eventually, I dug around the bowl and found the smallest, deadest-looking thing of the bunch. I spooned it and kicked it back as fast as I could. It was a gross, jizz-like consistency, and it was fucking disgusting. After that, I settled for eating more rabbit food, and it was basically on the plates. It was really just garnish. At the end of the night, the group dropped me back off at my hotel, just in time to catch up and reunite with Mike Awesome. Hey, he said. I know those guys. Oh, yeah, I said. Are those the ones who gave you the Kobe beef? Oh, no, but they brought me to some Japanese restaurant and then to a bathhouse for a happy ending, Mike would say. Oh, I laughed. How was that? Pretty good, Mike said. Pretty good if you like getting jerked off by your grandma. The Jizz Squid wasn't my last unfavorable encounter with the mob and dinners. In many of the Japanese matches I have wrestled on, I could always see them there. I knew right where they were sitting, right at ringside, and I knew that many of them had egos and were pretty much assholes. You see, they felt since they had money in the game, and they felt that they were supposed to be treated like untouchables. You see, more of them or not, they had egos a mile long, and they wanted to be fashioned as being dignitaries. Just like the particular vibe I picked up with the sponsors who took my uncle and me out for dinner that one time, the mob had their unwritten rules. Wrestlers from out of the country were always told never to bring the match outside of the ring where the mob were sitting. They all had attitudes and what types of matches and how the guys were going to do things. I think things were just taken a little too far. Oh, man. On one particular evening, I recognized one of the mobs sitting by ringside. I didn't care. I knew the mob members had a history of needing to look like badasses in front of their peers, but I wasn't going to let that bullshit stand in the way of having a good match. If they try and make an example of me, I'm going to knock their teeth out. I was working a match against one of the locals. He fell outside the ring. As he walked around the ring steps, he stopped to rest. He positioned himself perfectly for a baseball slide under the bottom rope. I knew exactly where the mob were sitting, but I didn't let them know what I was going to do or that I was going to change things. I slid it to my opponent like a home run into home plate. Then I picked him up and slammed him right in the middle of them. They looked at me as if I just farted in church. I could tell they were saying the equivalent of, we should kick your ass, and how dare you, to me in Japanese. But I didn't understand a word of it. Japanese fans knew the deal. Most fans loved being near the action, but knew that if a wrestler fell into the crowd, you backed up and you let the show continue. However, these assholes were squaring up, and they were trying to invade our space. Their tough guy, territorial act, pissed me off tremendously, so I turned around and I walked away from them. But I was only getting a running start. Then I backed up and then I ran as fast as I could and I hit my opponent again with a suicide dive. My feet flew right into the crowd where the mob were sitting. The circle spread out again and they closed in on me even tighter. Immediately a couple of the well-inked members started to close in. Then they started shoving me. One of them got right up into my face chin to chin, like boxers would do at a weigh-in. You ain't so tough, I said. Fuck you. Before they even knew what hit them, 
I started hitting them. Two of them grabbed me. I started throwing punches at them. I actually did pretty well for a moment until a dozen little reinforcements came in. They came out of nowhere. Ah, shit. Even though they were smaller than me, they were just too many. I hopped over the guardrail in a real fleet to try to get out of here. I hit the ground running. They chased me right down the aisle and into the locker room area. Once I made it to a clearing, I nailed a few of the scrawny-looking ones. Man, they were scrawny. I hit them with some massive haymakers. They quickly went down. But it was to no avail. And all time, I was being flooded by probably a dozen or so guys, and they were beating the ever-loving hell out of me. What the hell? Stomp, kick, punch. Those little Japanese Oompa Loompas, these guys were tough. What a way to die, I thought. Death by a dozen midgets. I looked up from the floor and I took a stiff kick to the ribs. Then, about a foot above their heads, I could just barely make out a much bigger head bobbing out of the dressing room right towards me. Was that the big boss? Was it the mob's secret weapon of destruction? Nope. The answer was no. It was awesome. Mike Awesome. He was getting dressed right by me, and he heard the commotion as the midget mob rushed by my lo by his locker room. Now, before the tour, I wasn't a big fan of Mike Awesome. He came across as a little loud, but I didn't really get to know him yet. I thought maybe he was just full of himself or selfish. I didn't know what he thought of me either, but I'd have to say he didn't hesitate to help me out. He helped a brother in need. At this point... I was like fucking Gulliver's Travels. I couldn't move. Three of these Munchkin Mafia members were holding me down, and one was holding a chair over my leg right above me, seizing me up, and he was going to stab it down on me. The wrestler, also known as the Gladiator, and for good reason, he pushed through the mob and he made it to the center. He saw one standing over me with a chair while another was attempting to push my hands away from his face with his foot. The wiry bastard had given up my throat, and I was now trying to position the leg of the folding chair directly over my temple so he could stab it right down into my skull. These guys were fucking dirtier than anything you'd ever seen. Mike went from zero to 80 in no time. He shifted right into beast mode. Now, for those of you who have never seen him before, he was a monster. Six, seven, three hundred pounds at least. Next to a typical Japanese man, he was a real-life Godzilla. That is why he was getting bookings in Japan for the first place. Mike jumped right onto the big pig pile. First, he grabbed the member attempting to do brain surgery on me with a chair, and he threw him against the wall. There was such a loud crash, and he slid down like a cinder block in a wet rag doll. Another guy ran into Mike and tried to kung fu shit him, but Mike was just too big. Mike knocked the hell out of him with one punch. The mob backed off for a moment. They couldn't believe it. Mike started to unbury me from all the stuff, and he picked off the rest of the members. And then he threw them down the hall like bags of garbage. Are you okay, brother? Yeah. But before I could even thank him, we saw reinforcements. Even more of the mob were running down the hall at us, coming from the other side of the curtain. Mike cleared the path, swinging his arms like machetes until we made it into the nearby locker room for shelter. Before we could secure the door, it looked almost like a scene out of a zombie movie. We had to push the door shut from the inside against the weight of all their bodies, pushing behind it before we could even latch it locked. 
We were both blown up, gasping for air. We finally started laughing. Hey, man, thanks, I said. I guess you uh, aren't called Mike Awesome for nothing. No problem, he said. We both leaned against the wall and dropped into a seated position. The pounding on the door started. We were listening to it as we experienced one Japanese wrestler after another who tried to come into the room. When Mike told me to move away and he opened the door, I just didn't know what to do. For about 30 minutes, the members banged and banged and banged. The knocking slowed, but they didn't go away. They made several death threats and were beyond pissed. Every half hour or so, we would crack the door to see if the coast was clear, and then the pounding would start all over again. We stayed in that fucking room for almost two hours because the mob absolutely refused to leave. Eventually, some kind of security came in and guarded the door. The mob continued to threaten to stab both of us when we were leaving. After a while, security members talked them down and the tensions had eased. Finally, they left. After that night, I was one of the biggest Mike Awesome fans around. Mike had done a lot for me. He saved me that night, and I can never repay him. I had been doing a bunch of brutal matches, as I talked about before. Barbed wire matches. Until I had a conversation with Anita to give me a break from all that craziness, lighten things up for me. But how do you top a barbed wire match? Well, we light the barbed wire on fire now. After seeing much success with all the barbed wire matches and exploding barbed wire matches, Onita decided to raise the measuring stick. When he was down in Puerto Rico, he saw another dangerous match that wouldn't cost him as much as the exploding barbed wire gimmick would. Instead of explosions, he decided to steal an idea from the Puerto Rican fire match where they lit the ropes on fire and they added it, but this time there were no ropes. It was barbed wire that was on fire. So come May of 92, I was booked in Haigo Sandra City for an outside show in front of 5,011 fans. I found myself teaming with my uncle, the Sheik, in a ring of fire deathmatch against our regular enemies, Onida and Gato. For this brainchild of a match, Onida and the ring had all of its rope replaced with barbed wire, but to keep them intrigued, they used sheets soaked in gasoline they strategically wrapped them around the barbed wire. When the match officially started, the ring crew lit it, and there we go. The sheets caught on fire and turned into torches. It was quite a spectacle, being outside. The winds were kind of strong that day. They started picking up before the match. And as a science teacher will tell you, oxygen fuels fire. As the match started, we went at it. It was pretty hot. In the meantime, the wind had already knocked pieces of the ignited sheets onto the ring apron. You see, the thing is, there was all this kerosene on the canvas. It had dripped off of the cloth sheets that were wrapped around the barbed wire. Now there was kerosene on the mat itself. But what could we do? We really couldn't do anything. The fire was a huge distraction, and therefore the match was the shits. Before we could really do anything... We were so worried about our safety than putting on a show. It would really be something if we wasted any more time. The match lasted no more than two minutes. So there we were, surrounded in flames, and that was it. It was a fucking unbelievable, unbearable situation. What the hell do we do? I shouted to Anita. 
It was getting so hot by the fire, I was actually turning the barb wire red. I knew that staying in the ring any longer than that, we were going to be screwed. Finally, Onida waved his arms. Following Onida and got his lead, I quickly got out of the ring, diving through the flames the best we could. But when I turned around, I couldn't believe my eyes. Sheik, I yelled, get out. My slower moving 65-year-old uncle was still in the ring with the crazy fire beginning to burn down everything in sight. Just in time, a few young boys rushed to the scene with some extinguishers. The spray was not enough to, subs to subside all of the flames so the sheik could slowly start to crawl his way out. After he was ushered out safely, they rushed my uncle to the hospital for smoke inhalation and third-degree burns. He was pretty beat up too, but unfortunately, he turned out to be okay. In the meantime, the entire arena was covered in black smoke. There was no way for fire trucks to make it on site. The fire, in turn, that thing that had burned everything down, yeah, it burned for 19 hours. There was nothing left of that ring in the end, but a burnt ring frame and a pile of ashes. Even the barbed wire had completely burnt up. In the end, it was declared a no contest. The match ended with no winner, but nobody could argue with Anita on that one. Although it wasn't the worst ending, the fire match got the most heat out of our entire tour. That is going to do it for chapter five. That has been a very long chapter, but I will tell you this. We learned a lot. We learned a lot about FMW. We learned a lot about how the mob plays a integral role in wrestling over in Japan and how the culture is very, very different. Uh, organized crime, pro wrestling, people with money wanting to be around the wrestlers. We realize that the wrestlers taking gifts and money, you have to do things the way they want you to do them. If you go against that, there's going to be hell to pay. It's, it's very interesting for me to read these things. Now, have some of these things happened in the States? I don't know. I'll have to do some research on that to find out. But that's life. Anytime big money is to be made, you know corruption is not too far behind. Like I said, that's going to do it. Chapter 6, when we come back next, is going to be his WWF tryout match. And that will be Chapter 6. But before I go, I do want to let you know, please tune in each and every Tuesday night on our Twitch channel. And that is twitch.tv forward slash frmpod. Um, Front Row Material podcast, the audio version drops each and every Friday. Uh, Future Stars Now is another great show that The Writ has uh, established. We are going to be releasing audio episodes of that as well. Six Degrees of Written Renegade is another show, and obviously one of our oldest running shows, The Cult of Beardo. So the Front Row Material brand is going to be putting out shows for each day of the week. We would love it if you would support us and go ahead and give them a listen and download. Please also make sure that you tell wrestling friends that you know I want to check out this podcast. It's free. It's fun. We also have a wrestling hotline each and every Tuesday night. Give it a call. Talk about wrestling. Really talk about anything. Our panel would be more than happy to take your call live on the air. With that being said, I hope you all are doing well. And we will catch you next time on Overbooked. The world of NLW Radio never stops.